Hey guys, Mrs. Bacon here. Um, due to some technical difficulties, uh, screencasting isn't working, but this actually may be a better option where you can listen to me talking about the PowerPoint as you go through it yourself. So make sure you open up the Thomas Jefferson PowerPoint. I'm gonna go along with the PowerPoint. However, I may talk about some things in a bit of a different order, but just so you know, I'm staring at the PowerPoint right now and I will be going through pretty much everything on this uh, PowerPoint and in the order that it goes in as well. Um, Thomas Jefferson as president is one of the most interesting presidencies of this early era because he is the first president to be dealing with lots of things. Um, we had John Adams, but he was only a one-term president, so he never really got to follow through with much of the stuff that went down during his uh, first term. So we're going to see a big change. George Washington, you can't compare anybody's presidency to his because he was the one setting all the precedents. So by now, he's our third president. We've seen a lot of things happen, and now we're going to start establishing what the norm is going to be for the presidency. Remember, we're still trying to figure out what the role and the job of the executive is per the Constitution in Article 2. And there's going to be a big um, split or rift between people and their ideas about the Constitution. We're going to have our strict constructionists who believe that every word of the Constitution says exactly what it means. You should not interpret it other than that. There is no gray area, whereas you have your loose constructionists that believe in that gray area, that the Constitution was intentionally left vague so that the elastic clause could be used to kind of stretch the powers and interpret it loosely. So we're going to talk about Jefferson's personal beliefs on being a strict constructionist, but a lot of his policies are going to echo those of a loose constructionist, which really kind of create a big contradiction with Jefferson. Another thing about Jefferson as president is that President Jefferson is very different than Revolutionary Jefferson. The young revolutionary who wrote the Declaration of Independence is now older in an established country, but he's also spent a lot of time in France, and his wife has died at this point. Um, he has a lot of stuff going on with his personal life, and he's a very different person. So the President Jefferson is really different than your revolutionary Jefferson. Okay, so a little context to the election of 1800. Um, president Adams was a Federalist president and really the only Federalist president. Okay, you can't really label Washington as Federalist, even though he followed a lot of Federalist policies. Washington was not of a political party. Remember, he warned against political parties. But um, when Adams is president, he is going to follow along with a lot of the Federalist beliefs and policies. And we're going to see a change in the Federalist Party in the sense that it's going to go away. We're going to lose a lot of Federalist leaders, and it's just not going to have a whole lot of power anymore. So during uh, Adams's presidency and uh, dealing with the XYZ affair and the quasi-war, um, there was a lot of loss of support for Adams. Now, keep in mind, when Adams was elected president in 1796, he barely won. Jefferson only lost by three electoral votes. And before the 12th Amendment, which was ratified in 1804 by Jefferson, the way that the Electoral College worked per the Constitution is that the um, electors um, basically picked two people. And whoever came in first became the president. Whoever came in second became the vice president. But we're going to see during Adams's presidency how much of a failure this is. Because Adams only won by three electoral votes, Thomas Jefferson, who's going to be his vice president, has extremely different views than Adams, as Thomas Jefferson is a Democratic Republican. So there's going to be a lot of contention in the White House. Um, and the Congress at the time 
1798, there was a congressional election, creates a Federalist majority in Congress. So you think that John Adams should have the upper hand here. However, um, he's going to uh, pass a lot of laws that the Democratic Republicans, even though they're a minority at the time, are really going to fight hard against, such as, you know, the Virginia-Kentucky Resolves, Thomas Jefferson and other Democratic Republicans believe that um, they can still nullify, they being the states, can still nullify um, certain congressional um, passages that they don't believe is true. Now, the judicial branch does not have a ton of power yet. We haven't had uh, Marbury versus Madison, which establishes judicial review yet. So if a if Congress passes a law that certain people find to be unconstitutional, the states are just going to decide to nullify. That's part of states' rights. So that's what the southern states are going to start doing. You're more Democratic Republican states. So it's very easy to do that. Jefferson and the rest of the Virginians are going to get a lot of power during Adams's presidency. And in um, the election of 1800, we're going to see everything with the Federalists crumble. Um, the fact that Adams loses his reelection speaks volumes for the Federalist Party, but also the Federalists lose the majority in Congress in the election of 1800 as well. But what this also shows is it truly highlights political party influence in elections. Um, one thing that's really fascinating about this election is that the three-fifths compromise that was settled during the Constitutional Convention is what truly helped Jefferson get elected in this election of 1800. Um, we'll see a map in a couple of slides that'll show this. So I'm going to hang tight on that, but that's something that I really want to uh, make sure we talk about. And of course, Hamilton's influence in this election as well. All right, so I want to move forward to the slide titled Election Campaign of 1800. Uh, let's talk about Jefferson's um, campaign here. So Federalists, like I said, are losing support. The Alien and Sedition Act created a lot of enemies. Um, what the Alien Act did was it um, really hurt a lot of the immigrants who were coming to America and trying to naturalize or become citizens. So that they originally changed the laws from uh, being five years to become a citizen to 14. And that was all Federalist policy, and that angered a lot of people. So um, the war with France, of course, is going to be an issue. Um, lots of money uh, being collected for taxes, building a navy, but there was no war. So what was the point? Um, it was just a lot of confusion. But remember, this is only our second president when Adams is president. Things were still trying to work them out, figure this out. What is this even going to look like? Um, so Jefferson is very vocal about his um, uh, disagreements and conflicts with the Federalists, and the Federalists are going to be very vocal in attacking Jefferson. Um, Jefferson is going to be kind of the first um, candidate, I guess, where personal attacks are going to come into the political arena, but Jefferson is going to do the same thing, and he's going to use the press against Adams and create some pretty nasty political cartoons um, towards um, John Adams. What's sad about this is that Prior to all of this, Adams and Jefferson were almost best friends. They were your original patriots, right? This revolutionary generation. And now political parties are getting in between them. It's exactly what Washington warned everybody against. Um, so it's, it will end in a happy story in terms of their friendship, but it's, it really highlights that partisan divide between the Federalists and the Democratic Republicans. And again, we don't really know where this is going. We've only had one true election, 17, um, 
92 when Adams is, I'm sorry, 1796 when Adams is first elected. Okay, this is our, our next election. Um, Adams is running for re-election. Is he going to get re-elected? We don't know. Everything is just so new. Um, so in terms of the Democratic Republicans, there is another person running, and his name is Aaron Burr. Aaron Burr um, kind of is a flip-flopper. He's a person who's looking for political gain. He comes from a very wealthy family, a well-known family. His father, or, I'm sorry, his grandfather was actually Jonathan Edwards, the um, preacher from the Great Awakening, the fire and brimstone preacher. Um, and he has a very uh, powerful, wealthy last name. And so he goes in the up and up into politics and gets a lot of votes just simply because of his last name, not necessarily because of his beliefs. He makes a lot of enemies because he's loud um, and he tries to fit in when there's a spot. So um, he will become a senator of New York. Um, he's going to flip between the Federalists and the Democratic Republicans. And he is also going to be running for president in 1800. Um, so again, before the 12th Amendment existed, the Electoral College looked very different. The idea here is that each member casts two votes. The f person who comes in first becomes the president. The person that comes in second becomes the vice president. Um, but we saw with Adams's presidency, this isn't going to go well. It doesn't make any sense to have two people of different political parties in, you know, the, being the president and the vice president. But things are weird when you have Jefferson and Burr running. Um, the tie, or they essentially tie with the first uh, place election or electoral vote. Um, and when you don't have a majority Per the Constitution, the House of Representatives gets to pick who the president's going to be. And we're going to talk about so many times, real five times that this actually happens, most recently in the year 2000. Um, the House of Representatives picks. Um, each state essentially gets one vote. And at this time, we only have 13 states. Um, these 13 states are going to debate for days. Um, and the Federalists are kind of torn because they're having to choose between two Democratic Republicans. You know, they can't even vote for Adams because he got no votes. So they have to decide between Burr and Jefferson. And uh, lots of these Federalists are going to look to their leader, who is dealing with a lot of personal issues, Alexander Hamilton. Uh, Hamilton's son has recently died in a duel. He has been kind of um, dealt with some scandals that has kicked him out of um, the White House. Um, he made a lot of enemies with a lot of Federalists, but they do respect his opinion still. And Hamilton uh, gives his nods to Thomas Jefferson. Even though they were total enemies during Washington's presidency as uh, cabinet members, he believes that Jefferson is less dangerous and of higher character character than Aaron Burr. Um, Aaron Burr just kind of is looking for an opportunity, trying to rise up in the political class, and Hamilton's not a fan of that. So in the end, um, that election campaign of Jefferson, it works, but not necessarily because of the policies that he's campaigning on, but because of the three-fifths compromise. A lot of the southern states are going to have uh, more electoral votes, and that's going to help him, as well as the... Um, the, the nod from Hamilton, really. So the Federalists are going to try really, really hard, but in the election of 1800, they're going to lose both the executive branch and the legislative branch. So if you move forward to the next slide, this election is more than just election. It's a revolution. It's a peaceful revolution, and it's considered to be the quote-unquote revolution of 1800. It's a bloodless revolution. Prior to 1800, all of the revolutions have been very bloody, the American Revolution, the French Revolution, any kind, any kind of revolution where there's a change in power has been violent. But Jefferson winning this new election 
and the entire executive branch being passed from the Federalist Party to the Democratic Republican Party, as well as Congress. Okay, so the both the Senate and the House of Representatives also won their congressional elections in 1800, being switched from a majority Federalist Party to now majority Democratic Republican. And the Federalists are going to quietly hand over their power and bow out. And that's it. And what this proves is that the Constitution will work. Right? We handed power off through the voice of the people. Now, there's a big asterisk here. You can't see me, but um, there's air quotes. There's asterisks because how representative is Congress of the people at this point? And the answer is not very. Remember that the um, Congress is and the president is elected by electors and your wealthy white land-owning men. Right? Women do not have the right to vote. African Americans do not have the right to, to vote. Even landless white men do not have the right to vote. That doesn't change until the 1820s. So how representative of the people is Congress, is the executive branch? Not really. Um, so that's important to keep in mind. So Jefferson wins the presidency, um, and we see this peaceful power exchange from the Federalists to the Democratic Republicans very easily. The Federalists aren't going to fight. Now, the Federalists are going to quietly um, talk about ways to get out of this, but publicly and uh, politically, they're not going to fight on the stage of the federal government. So this is going to prove that the new system of government can succeed, and it shows that elections are based on popular support. I'm doing my air quotes that you can't see. Popular support of who? Right? Your popular support of your well-bred, your well-fed, your well-educated. Um, that population of people voting is not um, representative of the entirety of the United States at the time. Okay, your next slide is going to show you that map of the Electoral College. Um, let me explain Electoral College math quickly because you have not taken government yet and maybe you don't know about how the Electoral College works. Um, the Electoral College has changed per the 12th Amendment, so today it's different than its original writing in the Constitution. But the way the Electoral College works is that Rather than directly electing our president, the Electoral College elects the president. And when American citizens are voting in a presidential election, what they're doing is they're voting to see if their Electoral College is going to vote for one side or the other. So the Electoral College is based on a number, and this math is determined by the number of representatives that a state has plus the number of senators that that state has. So if we look at Georgia on this map right now, Georgia is super, super small, so the House of Representatives only has two people in it, but all uh, states have two senators. So if you add their representatives plus their senators, Two plus two equals four. So if you were to add all of those numbers together, plus DC is going to get three votes. That's not later until the 1960s that that amendment happens. But during this time, all of the Electoral College is just the number of representatives plus the number of senators. But the Electoral College, these electors, these people are not your representatives and they are not your senators. Anybody can be an elector, but at the time it's just going to be really party leaders are going to be your electors um, because states are largely party oriented, right? They're not um, split. You have mostly your uh, Democratic Republicans in Virginia. Um, so that's where the kind of the support goes. You can kind of predict which way a state is going to go, even today. Um, but in order to win the presidency, you need to win a majority. Now, today, our number is 538 
Um, and what that is is 435 representatives plus 100 senators plus three electors from D.C. since D.C., Washington, D.C. does not have anybody in the House of Representatives or in the Senate. Um, and today, that number that a presidential candidate must get is 270 to get the majority, which is why right now you're probably going to start hearing a lot about 270 to win, 270 to race to the White House. So the numbers looked different, but the idea is the same. And if you look at the map, there's a couple of states that were divided. Uh, you have North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Maryland. These are going to be really important states that these campaigns had to focus on. But looking at North Carolina, there are 21 electoral votes in that state, and North Carolina is a slave state, right? So um, the reason that Jefferson wins this in the end is because of the three-fifths compromise and the fact that there are more electoral votes down in the South than there are up North. That really helps Jefferson out because he is a Southerner. He's also a slave owner. Um, so in the end, it's a tie. The House of Representatives is going to pick Jefferson over Burr, who technically comes in second place, um, and uh, Burr becomes the vice president to uh, Thomas Jefferson. But Thomas Jefferson, one of the very first things that he does as president is he does away with that current electoral college system and helps build a new one. And it gets passed by Congress pretty easily. He says that, hey, look, I've been the vice president for a uh, president who is the opposite political party. It doesn't work. Look at how bad it was. You know, all the things that Adams did, the moment I become president, I'm not going to be shy about this. I'm doing away with all of it. So what they decide to do is um, basically uh, change it so that they run as a ticket. So you see today, um, your presidential candidates pick a vice president and they run as a ticket. Um, we'll talk about more of that um, later. We'll see it play into a lot of elections, but really you'll talk about that a lot more next year um, in government. Okay, so let's talk about Jefferson as president. Again, he's very different than the uh, revolutionary Jefferson. Um, what hasn't changed is that he's quiet. What hasn't changed is that he's very peculiar. He's a philosopher. He is um, a scientist. He is an architect. He is a slave owner, but he's also has a romantic relationships with one of these slaves. He's a very peculiar man, um, and he is very different than other politicians. Um, he basically, he, I mean, he answers the door of the White House in his robe and slippers. He does not, he refuses um, to kind of dress as a member of the upper class. He doesn't want to be seen as this member of the upper class because he believes that this country is a country for farmers. Okay, he has this, this vision for the country of an agrarian nation. And he wants to really support that vision. He wants to be seen by the farmers as more of a common man. Um, and that's the opposite of the Federalists. But many of your Federalists, the support is coming from New England, your wealthy upper class up there. But of course, you do have your wealthy planter class in the South who are Democratic Republicans who are very fancy as well. Um, so um, Jefferson is inaugurated on March 4th of 1801 in Washington. Um, that inauguration date is going to change um, later on with another amendment. Um, and one of his most famous quotes comes from his first inaugural address. But every difference of opinion is not a difference of principle. We have called by different names the brethren of the same principle. But we are all Republicans and we are all Federalists. And this is a really important um, 
uh, quote to keep in mind because he's going to do things, a lot of things, to alienate the Federalists during his presidency. Uh, but he's also going to take on some Federalist policies for the greater good of the nation that's going to alienate some of his own Democratic Republican followers. Um, so as president, his goal is to pledge friendship with all nations and alliances with none, to stick true to Washington's neutrality. Um, he also is going to refuse to dismiss certain Federalist officials, which is going to anger many of his own party members. But one thing he's going to do is to um, get rid of uh, Adams's midnight appointments, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Okay, so on our next slide, titled Restraint, uh, Jefferson has to undo a lot of things that his predecessor, John Adams, did as president. Um, one of the first things that he does is he pardons the violators of the Sedition Act. Remember, he was the author of the Kentucky and Virginia Resolves, which nullified the Sedition Act, saying that it violated the First Amendment. So anybody who had been arrested um, or imprisoned because of that act, he's going to go ahead and pardon them because that's one of the privileges of being the president. Um, he also signs new naturalization laws, which um, undo and nullify the original alien acts that Adams had signed, which basically drops it back to that original five years from 14. So Adams, through the alien act, changed the naturalization um, status uh, from taking five years to 14 years, and now he's undoing that. He also repeals certain excise taxes, including the whiskey tax, but he's going to uphold certain tariffs. Now, tariffs um, are something that are really a, a contentious matter for the Democratic Republicans. Democratic Republicans generally oppose high tariffs, and he does as well, but he understands the need for them. He also maintains the National Bank for quite a bit, which was his absolute enemy during Washington's presidency, right? He fought tooth and nail to um, stop Hamilton from getting this passed, but he also starting to see the need for it. He later on admits after Hamilton's death that that was the absolute most genius thing anybody could have done for this nation, and he's very thankful for it. Um, and he's gonna go ahead and support that plan. Um, Andrew Gallatin at the time um, is going to be Jefferson's Secretary of Treasury, and he is going to focus on um, maintaining a ballot budget to reduce the debt, right? That debt is a big concern for pretty much all presidents. We do not want to be in debt. Um, we are actually able to um, keep the budget balanced until World War II. Um, that's when things are going to get pretty nasty for the federal uh, budget. So the uh, Democratic Republicans at the time, really, really, their number one platform is limiting the power of the central government, which is why they're not really happy that Jefferson is allowing certain high tariffs to stay, um, allowing for that national bank to stay, even though Jefferson personally opposes it, he thinks that it's the right thing to do. Um, one thing he will do, though, that is pretty partisan is he's only going to allow Democratic Republicans on his cabinet to avoid internal division, which is setting a precedent essentially for the future. Most presidents will only allow their cabinet members to be of the same political party, um, which I guess makes sense in terms of you want people who have similar ideas as you to have that same idea or, or platform that you have, but then at the same time, he experienced that political division under Washington's presidency and saw what that did. Um, the fights and the, the weird situation that that put Washington in. Um, so he did want to avoid that. Okay, moving on to our next slide with the judiciary. Um, with the passing of the Constitution, the Article 3 of the Constitution sets forth the idea for the judicial branch, but there's not much 
about it. We have to figure out what this is going to look like. And Washington will take that first step with the Judiciary Act, creating your federal courts and your district courts and the appellate courts. Um, but um, Jefferson's going to pass also the Judiciary Act of 1801, which is going to create new positions of federal judges. You have to understand that with the court systems, there are many levels of courts, lots of um, different layers. Think of it as a cake. Um, but you also have federal courts and then you have your state courts. We're trying to not step on the state's toes here, allowing the states to maintain their rights to be able to hear cases that you know, pertain to their states. But if a federal law is broken, it must go to the federal courts. So there are going to be in states, your state courts, as well as federal courts. But the federal courts are going to have your different layers. So we're going to have your federal courts that are in your states, then your district courts, and then of course, your Supreme Court. Um, when John Adams was the president, he decided to try to pack the courts at the very last minute. And what this means is that Washington had originally set for six Supreme Court justices. Now, six is kind of a funky number because then you could have a tie. Not much is going to get done. But at this time, nothing's reached the Supreme Court yet. Right? They haven't really needed to do anything. So one last um, push that Adams has at the very end of his presidency is that he's going to convince his Federalist Congress... Well, true to uh, Murphy's Law, of course, I had technical issues and I got cut off. So here's part two. I'm going to pick back up where I was talking about Adams' midnight appointments. Um, Adams, at the very end of his term, uh, utilizes his uh, Federalist Congress to put through a few new judges um, in the federal courts, not necessarily Supreme Court judges. He's trying to push more federal judges around the country. And he does so. He gets congressional approval to do so. And in order to get get those court or those judges uh, confirmed, there has to be paperwork done. So it's literally at the end of his presidency. So as Jefferson comes into the Oval Office on the first day of his presidency, there are some of those forms that have not been officially gone through. So he says, Jefferson says, well, no, I'm not going to honor these. I didn't sign them and they didn't get done in time. So no, I'm not going to honor them. We'll talk more about what that looks like in um with Marbury versus Madison, but that's going on as Jefferson's walking in. Um, Marbury versus Madison itself is going to be a separate part of this uh, unit. So there's an entire podcast we're going to listen to about that. But what Marbury versus Madison does is it establishes judicial review. And judicial review is the idea that the Supreme Court and only the Supreme Court can challenge a law for being unconstitutional, which goes against what the Kentucky and Virginia resolves said, right? There was no judicial review yet. So it was up to the state to decide if a federal law was unconstitutional and they could just nullify or ignore it. Well, that's no longer going to be the case. Marbury versus Madison is going to set that precedent. And now that's going to stymie some of the um, things that the Democratic Republicans are going to try and push through during uh, Jefferson's presidency. Now, um, Samuel Chase uh, was a... Um, uh, federal justice who was a, he was a federalist um and thomas jefferson's going to try and impeach him and this is definitely a political move uh jefferson says that he is impartial to the courts because he allows his political ideology to sway his court decisions uh but the senate says no that's not a reason that you can impeach him there's no evidence for this and he does not get impeached but what this does is it strengthens the independence of the judicial branch 
and that is going to uh, start to show that Jefferson is a little bit more partisan than he's leading us to think that he is. Um, so leading on to some different things, we're going to talk about some foreign stuff with the military. Um, Jefferson and the other Democratic Republicans fear a large military. A large military means we want to get involved with foreign entanglements, and we don't want that. The Democratic Republicans really want to cut military spending, and uh, Jefferson cuts the militia to 2,500 men. However, he's going to have a little war on his hands called the Barbary War. There's actually two. One happens during Jefferson's presidency, one during Madison's presidency. These Barbary pirates are coming off of North Africa. There's a little like confederacy um, in North Africa between um, uh, just some of these nations of the Ottoman Empire. Tripoli is one of the biggest, most powerful, and we have some pirates, like some legitimate pirates who are basically going into the Atlantic and um, seizing American merchant ships and holding their crews for ransom, demanding the United States to pay tribute to these Barbary rulers. And this is something that Jefferson wants absolutely nothing to do with. He says, no, I'm not paying this tribute to you. That makes it look like we're bending down to you and we're not doing that. Jefferson's going to refuse. Um, but he also at the same time doesn't want to necessarily show that he's building up a, a, a Navy to fight it, right? He's the one who wants to cut down the size of the Navy. So we do technically have this declaration of war for the first Barbary War, um, and it's a lot of fighting between our Navy and our Marines in Tripoli. Um, but in 1805, Jefferson is going to sign a treaty. He pays $60,000, which is essentially paying tribute uh, to buy captured U.S. sailors back out of the slavery that they're being held in as prisoners of war. Um, but he wants it to be considered as a ransom, not tribute. Tribute gives a negative connotation that the United States is bending to the will of the Barbary pirates, and he doesn't want that to be the case. He says, no, we're paying their ransom so we can avoid further war. Um, that doesn't necessarily make things bad for Jefferson. People are pretty happy that he's standing up for the United States and not just letting it happen like, say, John Adams had tried to do. Um, but that second war is going to happen under uh, Madison's presidency, so it's not quite over yet. However, we've got some domestic stuff going on uh, that does involve foreign policy. So we have the... Uh, uh, territory of Louisiana, there's a lot of changes happening. Napoleon, who's dealing with his, you know, Napoleon stuff and the Napoleonic Wars over in Europe, uh, starts to lose interest in um, some things going on overseas. He wants to really consolidate his forces in Europe in trying to build his... Um, uh, his empire, really. Um, but in 1800, he had convinced the king of Spain to secretly cede Louisiana or give Louisiana territory to France. Now, remember, the Treaty of, 18, of 1783 gave that territory from France to Spain. Um, and Napoleon originally has this idea of his empire being over in North America. Guys, I must be super popular today because I just got another call and it cut off my recording. So here's part three. Woohoo! Anyway, talking about Napoleon, Napoleon wants to use the agricultural um, space of Louisiana territory uh, to feed Haiti and uh, their other French Caribbean possessions. Um, so Spain in 1802 decides that they are going to close the port of New Orleans and that's going to alarm the United States because this goes against Pinckney's Treaty from 1795, right? The Americans had the right of deposit to, the, to New Orleans, to the port of New Orleans. So it really cuts off Western farmers from access to New Orleans and the farmers are threatening to take action against this. They're going to march and capture New Orleans and it's just like 
super hot and messy. So all of this is affecting the United States economy. It's affecting our relationship with other countries, France, Spain. And if basically Jefferson realizes that if any European power controls New Orleans, the United States is going to risk foreign entanglement. So there's a lot of context as to why Jefferson decides that it is the right thing to purchase Louisiana. So if you move to your next slide, we'll talk about the actual purchase itself. Remember earlier I talked about that Jefferson was what we call a strict constructionist. A strict constructionist interprets the Constitution as it is, word for word, with very, very little room to interpret. Um, and this is something that is very, very near and dear to his heart. It's very important to him, as is many Democratic Republicans. However, the opposite of a strict constructionist would be a loose constructionist. Loose constructionists are um, folks who read between the lines of the, of the uh, Constitution, believing that the Constitution was written to be vague on purpose. Your strict constructionists believe that it was written to be vague to control how much power the federal government has, meaning not give it very much power. It's vague because the federal government does not get a lot of power. They want the power to stay with the states, small central government. But your loose constructionists say, no, it's, it's open for interpretation. Read between the lines. There's gray area. That elastic clause was put in there to stretch the powers of the Constitution when necessary and proper. But now Jefferson's strict constructionist views are going to be challenged with the Louisiana Purchase. So um, with the Port of New Orleans really as the center of concerns, in 1803, Jefferson is going to send Madison to buy New Orleans and as much Western lands as possible for $10 million from Napoleon. However, Napoleon sees this as an opportunity to get out of North America. Now he can use the extra money um, to... Uh, you know, pay for other things that are going on, right? The Haitian Revolution um, is going on down in the Caribbean. There is perpetual war with Britain, obviously, so that's always happening. So he sees this as an opportunity to get rid of the Louisiana Territory as a whole, which is a lot more than Jefferson was originally thinking. And Napoleon says to him, look, I'll sell you this whole entire Louisiana, Louisiana Territory for $15 million, which is like three cents an acre. It's an incredible deal. And here you have Jefferson, who is just fighting himself because his strict constructionist belief says, no, there is nowhere in the Constitution that says that a president can purchase land. This must be congressional approval, but Congress is not going to go for this. So what do I do? And he is just torn, torn, torn. And he decides that it is for the, you know, the best idea for the country to buy this. So if you move to the next slide, continuing on with his constitutional dilemma, Jefferson decides to adopt this loose interpretation because it's too good of a deal to pass up. Um, the, the Federalists are arguing, saying, oh, well, you support strict interpretation, so you shouldn't be buying this. You're so contradictory. That changes everything that you believe. Parties are going to start to flip-flop their positions based on practicality. So you're going to see Jefferson, who at once was a strict con constitutionalist, flip to be that loose constructionist. And then your Federalists, who are always practicing loose constructionism, are going to flip to the idea of uh, strict interpretation because new land means more farmers, new states, which is going to further weaken the federalist power. Again, politics is driving this. So we're going to see a flip-flop of ideas. And um, in the end, the 
uh, decision is going to be popular with a lot of people except him because now he's torn from the inside saying, oh, I did the wrong thing, but it's great for the country. Um, three cents an acre is so good for my agrarian vision for this nation, but it goes against his interpretation of the Constitution. So he sets his own ideas, his own ideals aside for the country's good, and it is eventually ratified in the Senate um, as any treaty has to, and it is um, passed on uh, April 30th of, uh, well, no, I'm sorry, the purchase happens in April 30th of 1803, but it is finally passed still in 1803 by the Senate. So what this does is it opens up a lot of country that the United States has no idea what's going on over there, right? So um, I've moved on to the next slide with uh, the continuation of Louisiana Purchase. First, it sets a precedent for purchasing land. So now I guess this is a thing the president can do. Right? It's not in the Constitution, but hey, you know, necessary and proper clause, that elastic clause, this is what it's there for. So what Jefferson does is like, look, before I um, you know, open it up for people, I need to know what's going on out there. So he sends an expedition called the Louisiana Purchase Expedition, and he sends William Clark and Meriwether Lewis. They are uh, fur traders, they are mappers, um, they're also scientists, they're ex-military, um, and they send hit them over onto this trail to try and find a way all the way up to Oregon Territory. What does it look like over there? Uh, but they decide to take uh, Sacagawea with her. She was a Shoshone Native American woman, but she was married to a French fur trapper, so she spoke French. She spoke English. Um, she was, had very good relationship uh, with the Americans, as the Shoshone did. She was a great person to have. But also, um, other Native American tribes would see Meriwether and Lewis, I'm sorry, Meriwether and um, uh, William Clark to be peaceful, right? They see them approaching with a Native American woman. It is less threatening. So it's kind of a, a good thing for all. Um, so this is a two and a half year expedition mapping territory. It reaches the Pacific Ocean and it's going to establish U.S. claims in that entire region, but it doesn't make find a water route to the Pacific, which is what they were really looking for. Um, a couple of things that come out of this that are good consequences of the Louisiana Purchase and the expedition is going to be new scientific knowledge that's determined with different flora and fauna, stronger U.S. claims to the Oregon Territory. We now know what it's like. We are going to have better relations with uh, Native Americans thanks to Sacagawea, more accurate maps and routes for fur trappers and future settlers. So this is all going to be really helpful. Uh, we're also going to have um, a later expedition in 1805-1806. Zebulon Pike is going to explore headwaters of the Mississippi, and we'll go into the other, the southwest portion of that territory. So he makes a point to make sure we are going to go take a look. What is out there? What can we do with this land? He's going to make the most of a situation that really tears him up on the inside. All right, moving forward to the Federalist Party and the fall of the Federalist Party. Now Aaron Burr is back. Aaron Burr has some issues, man. Um, I'm going to try and fly through this because I know that this is kind of long. But Aaron Burr is really struggling with the fact that he's vice president and not the president. Remember, he's really trying to fight for that power. And he's going to get himself involved in a little conspiracy with the Federalists. So they tried, the remaining Federalists, there's not many, tried to convince Burr to help with the plot to get New England and New York to secede. This is kind of a way to get the Federalists to try and have a, a little bit of power again. Uh, but what Burr sees this as is a way to get back at Hamilton. Remember, Hamilton is the one that convinced the House of Representatives to side with Jefferson to pick him as the president, and Burr has it out for Hamilton. But there's also a split in the Democratic Party. There is a small group of Democratic Republicans called the Quids, and um, they basically felt that Jefferson was abandoning party principles, and Burr is kind of the leader of that. Um, and the 
12th Amendment in 1804 was established um, at the very, very end of 1804 before the election itself. And so that changes things as well. Um, that means that Burr no longer has to be the vice president. Jefferson can pick his own vice president. So the Democratic Republicans come together in a closed caucus meeting and decide not to nominate Burr for a second term as vice president. So naturally, Burr is absolutely irritated. He makes a political pact with radical New England Federalists to unite together and secede. And the Federalists wink at him and promise, if you do this, you can be the quote unquote governor or leader of this new country. Um, but it's just, it's ridiculous. And Hamilton is like, yo, bro, he makes a ridiculous remark saying, what are you trying to do? You are just chasing after um, your own, your own pride. This is insane. And uh, Burr, uh, uh, has a duel, offers a duel to Hamilton. Hamilton does not turn it down. This is July of 1804. And per the story, Hamilton is shot by Aaron Burr. He dies, not instantly, but quite quickly. And Burr is like, oh my goodness, I'm the vice president and I just killed a guy. So he is actually acquitted for the crime of murder and is allowed to finish out his term. However, he goes um, uh, to... Uh, Mexico after he is no longer nominated for the, uh, another term as vice president because Jefferson's going to get reelected pretty quickly. Everybody's pretty happy with Jefferson in 1804, except Burr is no longer in the picture. So Burr plots to take Mexico from Spain to try and unite Louisiana. He's trying to do this crazy thing. He's lost his mind. And Jefferson has him arrested for treason. Um, he basically goes to trial. And John Marshall, who was a Federalist, um, kind of uses the basis that the definition of treason that Jefferson is using is not quite treason, and the jury acquits uh, Burr, and he kind of flees to Europe, and he comes back to New York, and he dies with a totally um, diminished reputation. It's, it's a hot, hot mess. But in the end, um, this is uh, the end of the Federalist Party. You have John Marshall, though, who is really the only Federalist, but still very powerful. Okay, moving on to the next slide with neutrality. Um, as always, France and Britain are always fighting each other, but they're also fighting other people as well. And what their big thing is, is that they are regularly seizing ships of neutral nations and stealing cargo um, because they're trying to just take advantage of the seas. And uh, the United States sees the British as really the bad guys here. So Britain and France are obviously at war, always. And um, this war is hurting U.S. trade. The British Parliament in 1806 is going to issue something called the Orders of Council. And what this does, um, even though it's a British order, it does affect the United States and France. French control ports French-controlled ports closed to foreign shipping by a blockade. Ships must go through the British ports. Napoleon is ordering seizuring of all ships entering British ports. It's messy, but the United States, as a neutral nation, is still involved in trade. So what this does is it um, is going to hurt the United States in terms of their economy. So does this mean that it is an entanglement with other countries, or is it effectively um, hurting the United States? Is this a cause for the United States to go to war? Um, the United States sees Again, British is really the enemy here. The uh, British are going to constantly be poking the United States, trying to get back at war so they can have a second chance of trying to take their colonies back. Um, but we are going to have an incident with a couple of ships. So the U.S. Chesapeake, which is a Navy ship, is fired on by a British Navy ship called the, Le the Leopard. And three Americans are going to be killed and four are taken captive. Uh, but what it does is... Um, 
there are very anti-British feelings and people are looking at Jefferson, how are you going to handle this? Think back to Je uh, John Adams and the Quasi-War and the XYZ affair. People are really harboring these anti-British uh, feelings and Jefferson decides he's going to use diplomacy to respond and not war because he's trying to stay with that idea of neutrality that Washington warned us about. He says this is not an attack on America. This is an attack on the Atlantic and uh, the ships, and we will deal with this. And he basically um, deal, uses diplomacy to deal with this. But his response to this is what really hurts him as the president and ends his presidential career. Um, his response to this affair to try and hurt England and France at that matter is going to be um, the embargo. He believes the embargo of 1807. He believes that the only way to avoid war is to shut down shipping, right? If there's no shipping going on, then none of our sailors or crews can be impressed or seized and impressed and forced to be working as um, essentially um, captives or these prisoners of war. So Jefferson believes that the British and the French rely on American goods. However, he also knows that the U.S. military is still weak. We cannot go to war with this weak military. He's the one who cut it down to 2,500. So he passes the Embargo Act. And what it says is it forbids export of all goods from the United States. Economically speaking, this makes zero sense. But he is also trying to avoid war. So what this does is it hurts your New England merchants more than it's going to hurt France or Britain. Right? The hope is that British will stop violating rights of your neutral nations, meaning the United States, but instead it backfires and brings economic hardship. Um, and the British are like, whatever, we'll just get our supplies from South America, no problem. What it does is it devastates merchant marine and uh, shipbuilders in New England, which is going to lead to depression. And that New England area that is still somewhat federalist, there's no strong federalist leaders, but they still have those federalist ideas there, um, are going to lead a movement to secede again. They're like, no, this president doesn't know what he's talking about. He's hurting us economically, which yes, it does. It absolutely does. And in the final days of his presidency, he calls for a repeal. And there's lots of smuggling going on. Your southern and western farmers are going to be uh, hurt by lots of unexported goods that they're growing, right? Your farmers need to rely on uh, shippers to be buying their goods so they can ship. But if shippers can't do that, that's going to trickle down and hurt the farmers as well. So Jefferson realizes that this is an absolute mistake. He gets a lot of ton of bad press. Um, and he decides that he will not run for re-election. He hated being president. Um, if you actually go to his gravestone in Monticello in Virginia. He has on his uh, gravestone, writer of the Declaration of Independent, member of Parliament, or, I'm sorry, member of the House of Burgesses, Virginia House of Burgesses. He does not even include the presidency on it because he hated being president so much. So by the time that election comes around, he says, I am absolutely not going to run for re-election. And his Secretary of State, James Madison, is going to run as the Democratic Republican, and he's going to win that election. We'll talk about that later. But just to kind of pick piggyback on the result of that embargo, it is replaced by the Non-Intercourse Act in 1809. And this is three days before Jefferson leaves office. So Madison will carry out with this Non-Intercourse Act, but it doesn't do anything. It reopens trade with all nations except France and Britain, but it's still going to hurt U.S. trade. Our main partners are going to be France and Britain. So the smuggling is going to continue until 1812. Um, which is when we're going to go to war with England again. Um, the Non-Intercourse Act during Mad Madison's presidency will be replaced by Macon's Bill Number 2 to help restore trade, but unfortunately it's not going to be enough and we are going to fall into another war and we will pick that up with Madison's presidency. Okay, so... Um, 
Really, this leads into um, the last slide, which is going to be the failures of Jefferson as president. The last year of his presidency really marks a massive failure. All of the good things he did for the nation, people quickly forget because of that embargo and non-intercourse act. And um, it just... It just was it. It was bad. It was really bad. Uh, Jefferson even admits that a Navy and war would have lost less money than the embargo. He goes back and says, you know, I, I should have gone to war, but it went against his personal beliefs. Um, so all, after that, you know, everything kind of just starts to fall apart with the British and the Federalists are going to regain some power. Um, what will happen is that because of shipping and kind of the reliance on the industrialization and the factories in England, we're going to start to see factories reopen um, and promote industrialism here in the Northeast as we go into the era of good feelings and the market revolution in the next couple of decades. Okay, guys, that's it for uh, Jefferson's presidency. The biggest thing, the biggest takeaway that you need to know is that as a strict constructionist, he went against his own personal ideals about his interpretation of the Constitution to help grow grow the nation. And while there were a lot of really great things that he did, essentially his president, his second term is seen as a massive failure because of the Embargo Act.